Amen. Really interesting reflection. I find myself listening to that and thinking about life, thinking about um, those that we miss, those that have gone on before us, and some of us who are sort of in the winter of our life, but we keep our hand to the plow and keep pressing forward because there's a prize that awaits us. It would be easy to get discouraged by troubles and problems and by the absence of loved ones, but God has us here for a reason, and I think faith always looks forward. We're going to be in Mark again this morning, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 14. And while you're finding your passage, let me just kind of uh, introduce the passage. Um, last week, we were with Jesus and his disciples. If they, le they left the upper room, and they're making their way toward uh, the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. As they left the upper room and began that journey, by the way, it's about maybe even less than a mile as the crow flies, but as they would take the journey around Jerusalem proper, outside the walls of Jerusalem, to the western slope there of the Mount of Olives, uh, maybe a little over a mile in distance. So as they're walking, Jesus tells them, this will remind you of the lesson last week Jesus said all of you are going to offend me and of course they did not believe that and uh, they argued that that was not true especially Peter and so now Jesus is, is making his way to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, this is to me such a um, really a holy event and such a dreadful event to think about because this peaceful garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, really becomes ground zero for the greatest struggle that will ever take place, I believe, in human history. And, uh, and victory will either be won or lost in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we find ourselves today. So if you're able to stand, please stand with us as we begin reading in Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou? Watch one hour. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. 
The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. Lo, he, hath betrayed, he that betrayed me is at hand. Our Father, we thank you for your word again today, and we recognize it as what it is. Not the word of man, but the word of God. The eternal, inerrant, inspired word of God. The revelation, Lord, that you have for us of this moment, this evening, this time, this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. We pray that you'd bless today as we look at it again. Lord, help us have open hearts and open minds. May your word, like the good seed that it is, Father, have a resting place in our hearts. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. This is such a, to me, is such a dramatic event such a significant event for me personally it seems like no matter how much time I give to it and think about it meditate upon it I still can't fully comprehend it just such a majestic time the Bible calls this place Gethsemane and what was Gethsemane Gethsemane was a garden uh, probably privately owned garden located on the Mount of Olives if you think about the Mount of Olives, don't think about the Rockies, not even the Smokies. Those are mountains. The Mount of Olives is not that kind of a mountain, but it is a mountain. And it's called the Mount of Olives because it was filled with this grove of olive trees, majestic olive trees. And um, the oldest olive tree, they say, in the world is not in Gethsemane. It's not even in Jerusalem. Uh, it's another country. But some of these olive trees live to be thousands of years old. Some in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the uh, most conservative estimates believe that they're probably 900 years old. Some people believe they could be the very ones. Some of them were there when Jesus was kneeling in that garden. The name Gethsemane means olive press. Um, you know, olives... We have olives often in our home, have olives on salads. We, we like olives. Olives is a tasty fruit. But the olive tree uh, is used not just for the olives as a fruit, but it's a, uh, the, uh, the olives are pressed and olive oil comes out of them. And that olive oil has many uses. Used in cooking, as some of you would know, has other values, but even has primarily medicinal values. It's healthy. Fights inflammation, it's an antioxidant, it promotes heart health and healing. And so these, these, this olive, these olives still, in, we've been to the Mount of Olives and more than once, and it's uh, st the very area where Jesus was. 
It was a place that Jesus went with his disciples often. As a matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, it tells us that at this particular time, he had been going to the Mount of Olives a couple of nights with his disciples. They would stay there, find seclusion there, a place of recluse and even staying overnight. They were familiar with the place. That's why when Judas went to find Jesus, he knew right where to go. He would be in this place. It was a good place to go and pray, and that's why, that's why he's there. If you look again in verse 32, it says, They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, all the disciples, only eleven now, Judas is gone to do his, his dastardly deed. And he says to the eleven there at that time, I'm going to go pray. Sit you here while I shall pray. And he's going to go a little further and pray. And it says in verse 33 that he taketh with him from that place. So he leaves the eight there and he takes with him a little further into the garden. Verse 33, Peter and James and John. And began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. So he leaves the, the eight, takes Peter, James, and John, goes further into the garden, and he's, he says that he began to experience the weight of this moment. Very amazed, sore amazed, it says. Uh, Jesus was not unfamiliar with pain. Jesus was not a stranger uh, to emotional conflict. I was reading yesterday in Isaiah 53, where it says that he was despised and rejected of men. He was acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus knew a lot about difficulty. Satanic attacks, being betrayed, being hated. Numerous conspiracies against him, religious people wanting him dead, trying to find a way to kill him. The his own family rejected him. His closest followers defected from him. But Jesus is about to experience a level of trauma that he's never experienced. He began to be sore amazed. It says in verse 34, and saith unto them, unto Peter, James, and John, notice this statement, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tear ye here and watch. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. That doesn't mean, as we might hear someone say in our circle of friends, that they feel so grieved that they feel compelled, they want to just leave this life. He was not so sorrowful that he would take his life. He was experiencing a level of sorrow and grief that the body could hardly withstand it. Even unto death, this sorrow and grief is about to take my life. He asked the three, the three closest to him, if they would stay there and watch. Verse 35 says, and he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. So he takes the disciples into the garden. He, he leaves eight of them at the first station. He takes Peter and John, James and John further with him. And then he leaves Peter and James and John and goes further into the garden where he is alone. Luke tells us this. 
that he was withdrawn this last time about a stone's throw, a stone's cast, about as far as you could throw a rock. Now, my mind goes to how far could a person throw a rock. And uh, I've seen my wife throw things that went behind her. So (laughs) that's not all that far. (laughs) But a person could throw a rock 100 feet, 150 feet, maybe even more than that, maybe a couple of hundred feet. So he's left the three, he's gone further into the garden about a stone's cast, Luke says, and he, and he fell, it says here he fell on the ground. Matthew says he fell on his face. So now Jesus is alone. The three of them are separated by a certain distance, we're not sure how far. The eight are even further away, and verse 35 says he prayed. And prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, Jesus is praying, and he prayed to his father, and he said, if it's possible, could, we, could, this, could this hour be avoided? Could this hour pass from me? And he goes on to say in verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou, what thou wilt. Abba, as you probably know, is a word that's a very intimate word. It's a word similar. Abba would be a word similar that a child would say to his father and call him daddy or papa. It's a very intimate, personal word. He says to his father in this term of affection, Jesus spoke to his father, feeling a weight of grief, a weight of sorrow he's never felt before. Would it be possible that this would pass from us? And then he said in verse 36, all things are possible unto thee. Now for me to say that to God is one thing, you know. God, I know that all things are possible to you, but somehow it seems different for Jesus to say that to his father. All things are possible Theoretically, God can do anything, right? There's nothing God cannot do. We just heard a song this morning about a God. What man is this who stands and looks at the raging wind and says, Peace be still, and the, they just, the winds just obey him. What man is this? He dries up rivers by just saying the word. He made the stars by his own word. There's nothing God cannot do unless it's something outside the realm of God's will. God can do anything, but God cannot do anything that his will would not even permit him to do. One thing he would not do, cannot do, and that is to violate his will, and that's what this is all about. So Jesus said, could this cup, look at that if you would please in verse 36, take away this cup from me. Could this cup be taken from me. Now, what is the cup? Jesus wasn't there with a cup of coffee or a tin cup. What, what did that cup represent? And that cup, he was talking about all through the Old Testament, it uses this terminology about God's wrath, the cup of his wrath, the cup of his judgment. The cup represented what he was about to go through. Even earlier in chapter 14, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in verse 23, where it says, 
He was having the Passover with his disciples and he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament. This cup represents the blood that I will shed, which is shed for many. The cup represented the suffering, the totality of the suffering that Jesus would endure. And that's not just physical suffering. It's not just emotional suffering, but it's spiritual suffering as well. Jesus was about to endure, about to experience something beyond our human understanding or comprehension. Jesus, think about this, his holy body, his holy body would become sin for us. It was a spiritual struggle. It was an emotional struggle. It was a physical struggle. It was a supernatural struggle. Struggle. Luke says, this is the hour of the power of darkness. It was a spiritual struggle. It wasn't just the pain. It wasn't just the emotion. It wasn't just the physical aspect of it. All the powers of darkness, I believe, converged on Jesus at this moment. And why would they? To stop him from going to the cross. Because the cross... The cross where Jesus would die is really the center, the focus, the apex of everything about human history. What Jesus did on the cross. We can't relate to this struggle. I mean, you and I may have struggled over decisions and struggled over things that happened to us. But if you think that was comparable to this, I, I, I welcome you today just to look closely at what Jesus is talking about. It's different than anything we would ever struggle. By the way, it's different even than our struggle with temptation to sin because it's just the opposite as a matter of fact. We are by nature sinners. Sinning comes natural for us. And so it's easy for us to be lured into temptation to sin because because our sinful bodies, our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. But Jesus was just the opposite. He was completely holy. Completely holy. The holy, the holy essence of his being is about to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. He's going to embrace this role as the Lamb of God. He's going to embrace this role as the sacrifice for sin. He's never known sin. He's never tasted of sin. He was fully man, but without the sinfulness of man. Imagine God taking the sins of all sinners of all time upon His holy being. This was a great struggle for Jesus. He would take upon himself the wrath of God, the judgment of God for our sin. The the wrath of God that sinners deserve, the wrath of God that I would deserve, not just momentary wrath, not just temporal wrath, but eternal wrath. 
But not just the wrath of this preacher, this sinner, but the wrath of every sinner. Multiplied millions of people, multiplied millions of wrath. And Jesus is taking all of that upon his own body. Imagine that. The agony of spirit and soul and body. Jesus said, Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, in verse 36, not what I will, but thy will be done. I believe Jesus in his humanity, he was in this excruciating agony. And his humanity would cry out for an escape, but he never resisted the will of the Father. Because he wanted nothing more than obedience to the Father's will. And this was the Father's will. What he was enduring was the Father's will. What he was going through was the Father's will. And by the way, that's, that's a great model for us. And that is, we should all want God's will for our life. What I naturally want and what God wants are often in conflict. By the way, it's the same for you. Sometimes the thing we want is not good for us. Sometimes the thing we want is not God's will. But it's a great place when we can come to the place and say, God, I might want this, but it's not what I want that matters. I want what you want. So at this moment, the Bible says in verse 37 that Jesus went back to the three. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. You know, when it says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, Tarry ye here and watch. That watch... That watch means to stay awake, be alert, watch. When Jesus came back to them after this first moment, this first, and I don't think it's a moment, I think it was a period of time praying through this agony of his soul and praying for God's will to be done. Even though what I'm feeling, what I'm going through is something I've never experienced before. God, I want your will to be done. He goes back to check on the disciples and Verse 37 says he finds them sleeping. And he spoke to Peter. Simon, sleepest thou? Are you asleep? You ever have someone call you and you were asleep? And they said, are you asleep? You said, no, I was just, I was just praying. Praying. <laughs> Sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Couldn't you you just stay awake for an hour and, and watch and pray? He says it again, verse 38, watch. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So let's not think that Jesus was only asking them to pray for him. He did ask them. him to pray for them but he's asking them to pray for their own benefit he says they're watching pray lest ye enter into temptation remember what he told them right before they got here you're all going to fall you need to pay attention you need to be you need to be on the alert you need to be watching and praying and then he says this great statement in verse 38 that's so true in our lives as well the spirit truly is ready 
But the flesh is weak. The spirit wants to do what's right. The spirit wants to pray. The spirit wants to say no in times of temptation. But the flesh is weak. So he said, he said pray. Keep praying. Keep, keep watching. Keep seeking the Lord. By the way, it's good advice, isn't it? We lose the battle sometimes against temptation because we don't take it seriously. We put our trust in our flesh. We put our trust in our own ability. We're not praying and depending upon God. And that's what Jesus was saying. By the way, I just think it's worth mentioning here. I think it's clearly in this passage. This is something about Jesus that just always I marvel at. In this moment of this great, intense agony. So much... So much intensity, so much struggle, so much passion that Jesus said, it may kill me. This it feels like my body will not be able to withstand this. And, in that, and he goes to them and he says, I want you to be sure and pray so you won't, you won't mess up. You won't make a mistake. He's always thinking about others. Isn't that an amazing thing about Jesus? Always thinking about others. So it says in verse 39 that he went away. Again, he went away. He left those three and went and he prayed and he spake the same words. He prayed again, saying in essence the same thing. What was he saying? Let, you know, let this cup pass from me if it's possible, but not my will, but thy will be done. This was not just a one-time prayer. This was not just a momentary prayer. Prayer. He was agonizing in prayer. How much so? So much so that Luke, the physician, it would make sense that the physician would make this observation. His, this is what Luke says. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's not just a play on words. That's, not, that's, that's in reality, blood was escaping from the pores of Jesus brought on by this intense agony. There's a medical term for that. We we all many of us know a young man who has that similar thing whose skin actually bleeds sometimes. I did a little bit of reading about that. What I read says that this is so rare that there's only a small number of confirmed cases in the 20th century. So it happens, such intensity, such pressure, such stress that Jesus began to bleed, blood seeping out of his pores. Luke tells us that God sent an angel to strengthen him, to help him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We find Jesus in Gethsemane the olive press being pressed in ways that we can't even imagine. But what will come from that press, from that agony of soul, will be healing for our souls. The Bible says in verse 40, he returned. When he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, neither wished they what to answer him. They didn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say either. 
how could you defend yourself? I mean, Jesus is going through the darkest hour that we could even begin to imagine. And they can't even stay awake to watch. Verse 41 says, and he cometh the third time and saith unto them. So he, he, left, he left them, he came back, he left them and came back. And now he leaves them and comes back a third time. Time after time, he's going and praying. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but thy will be done. But it was different when he came back the third time in verse 41. It says, he cometh to the third time and saith unto them, sleep on now. Take your rest. Get some sleep. Get some rest. It is enough. The hour has come. This is it. This is the moment. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In verse 42, he said, Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. In verse 43, where we'll probably be, Lord willing, next week, he said, and immediate, it says, And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve. While he was still speaking, Judas comes into the garden, but he's not alone. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We'll cover that in our next lesson. But I want to focus on this last time that Jesus came in verse 41 as we wrap this up. Where he says, the hour has come. And then verse 42, rise up, let us go. The, the betrayer was near. He was, he was almost there in a great multitude with them. But he said, it's time to go. What that tells me is that Jesus has secured the victory in his own heart, in his own soul. To me, there's triumph in that statement. If it had been me, I'd be looking for the back door out of the garden. You know, surely there's some way of escape. But Jesus said, gentlemen, it's time to go. I, I, in my mind's eye, I try to see him standing there, blood showing on him from being pressed and squeezed beyond measure. But he stands up and said, this is my time. With resolve. Why? Because he had yielded to the Father's will. He was fully in agreement, fully acceptable, fully surrendered to, fully ready to face whatever would face him up to the cross and in the cross. There's no hint of, no hint of defeat. There's no, I'm done. I'm tired of this. Nobody cares what I'm doing. I'm, none of that. I, or I quit. No complaining. Why couldn't you sleep with me? I'm telling or sleep, sleep. Why couldn't you stay awake and watch for me? But he's ready to go to the cross. The perfect lamb is headed to the cross. So when this crowd comes with Judas Iscariot and Roman soldiers and, and all these religious people, when they come, they didn't find a defeated, fearful, cowering victim. I think the victory had already been won. The cross is going to be, and we'll cover that, will be horrendous 
But to me, the victory was won right here. When Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. Before we close, I want to just apply this to our life. None of us will ever go through anything like what Jesus went through. None of us. But we go through struggles sometimes with our will versus God's will. And you know what? Unfortunately, too many times we go with our will and not God's will. Young person, God's will will not always be easy. God's will will often be difficult. God's will will frequently conflict with what you want to do. And you know what? Nobody can make that decision but you. Yes, it would be easier to do what I want to do. It would be more convenient to do what I would want. It would be more acceptable to do what I want to do. But God wants something different. And I'm telling you, in my mind, in my heart, this represents the great, some of the greatest decisions people ever make in their life when they say no to what they want and yes to what God wants. In a sense, that begins at salvation when we say yes to Jesus Christ because in saying yes to Him, we're yielding our life to Him. We're yielding the direction and control of our life to Him. This may seem like an exaggeration. I don't think it is. But many people are going to die and go to hell eternally because they insist on their way. I'm going to be in charge of my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That, is the, that, that represents the mentality of Satan himself. And you know what the best thing to do is? Look at yourself in the face and say, you know what? This may hurt. This may cost me friends. This may not be easy. But if this is what God wants, this is what I'm going to do. Aren't you glad Jesus did that? Because that brought him to the cross. If Jesus would have been like us, many of us, maybe even all of us, if Jesus would have been like us, he would have run from the cross. But no, he went to the cross. Rise up. Let us go. Let's get this done. Thank God for it. And the other thing I want to just mention, and it goes without saying really, he did this for you. He did this for me. He did this for his father. This is what God's will was. thinking of those words of the song I think we just the choir sang it just recently see from his head his hands his feet sorrow and love flow mingle down I welcome you today think about that if you're here today and you're not saved if you're today you you don't know that you're saved you ought today to bow before him in repentance and believe on him for your salvation he did this for you it wasn't a cakewalk. It wasn't easy. You say, well, he was God. He was God, and therefore it doesn't really a challenge. You're, not, you're, not, you're missing what the Bible says. It was the greatest challenge of all time. 
I tell you what, I don't, I don't put much stock in human heroes of any kind. But if you want a hero, you ought to make it Jesus Christ. The greatest man who ever lived. And he did this for you. He did it for you. When he, when he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, when the blood was pouring from the pores of his skin, you know why he did that? He did it for you, and he did it for me. Today, we ought to thank him for that. We ought to give him praise for that. And if you're not saved, you ought to come to him. Say, Lord, I want you in my life. I want you in my life. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. With our heads bowed today, with our eyes closed. Do you know the Lord today? Do you know that you've been born again? Do you know without any doubt today that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? And you may be sitting here as an adult or as a young person today and in all your sincerity and honesty, you don't know that. I'm not trying to make you confused or make you doubt, but I'm just telling you there's nothing like knowing you're going to heaven. And it's so unwise, so unwise to gamble with your eternity and say, well, one of these days I'll get more serious about this. One of these days may never come. And if it does, you'll regret waiting to get saved. If, you don't, if you're not saved, you ought to come to Christ. I'll be right here at the front to meet you. If you are saved, would you just take a few moments today and just, in your mind, make a little trip to Gethsemane, the Olive Press, and thank God for what he did for you.